This is Browns Digest. What's going on, Browns fans? I want to welcome you guys back to another episode of the Browns Digest podcast. And I know this is a little bit different for everyone, especially considering that we didn't have an episode last week. But if you guys follow me on Twitter, I do have something in the works. So potentially big news is on the horizon. But before we get into that, the most important thing for me to discuss is a special guest that we have on the Browns Digest podcast today, and that is Jack Duffin, the man on Twitter who actually has his account verified, and I'm talking about legit verified. He talks Browns salary cap all the time, gets his number from over the cap. Also, he does podcasts with Paul Brown, one of the big um, UK fans that I know a lot of people know about that are on Browns Twitter, and he also puts written work on the Dogland, some of his cap, uh, salary cap and contractual Articles are some of my favorite, and I love the way he breaks down the numbers. Jack, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's uh, it's it's this really weird period. It's like I absolutely love free agency. It's it's a phenomenal, fascinating week while that all breaks down. Then you got the draft, and then it it's just boring. It's like, hey, I'm ready for week one. I, I've I'll have a week where you have roster cuts, and then week one, and but I'm 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 ready for it now. I'm hyped. Yeah, but. But now this downtime, it gives you a little bit more opportunity to figure out, okay, what numbers are we going to be looking at? We got a lot of players from the 2018 draft that are looking for new contracts. I'm pretty sure some teams are going to try to get ahead of the ball in terms of signing some of their players. So I know you probably got some inside information that most people don't have in terms of what the numbers look like. And at the end of the day, the NFL is a business, so it's all about numbers, right? Oh, 100%. And it there's a definitive amount of money that every team can spend. Um, yeah, you can push that over several years and you can borrow from future years, but it comes down to a, it's a finite number, um, whether you can or can't sign players. Um, and yeah, it's, it's where those really smart decisions and it's where GMs make their money because it's not that hard. When when you've got the first overall pick, um, just picking a guy is there's no real brains to it. When you're deciding, hey, what are we doing with free agency? Are we re-signing this guy? Um, absolutely everything that goes on in roster management all comes back to the salary cap because the the positions you prioritize in the draft, everything relates around that. So it's fascinating. The fact that it touches absolutely every aspect is, uh, is why it makes it so interesting. So before we get into our first topic, this is something that we've seen people in the NFL pretty much all franchises and their writers and analysts alike is the talk of what this total salary cap may be like. Now we know there was a, a slight increase compared to what we saw last year, but where do you see this cap moving knowing that there's still that new TV new TV deal on the horizon? And are you in that group of that it might grow big like some people believe? Or do you think there may be a slighter increase than what some people may be expecting with this new TV deal that's coming up. Yeah. So next year, um, so this coming 2021 season, the salary cap is going to be 182 and a half million. Um, where that was expected to be is 210 million. So if you just spoke to teams 12 months ago, um, probably 24 months ago, and you've got to think because you're signing these deals two years in advance sometimes. Um, sometimes a player will sign an extension, but they don't actually start that contract really for two years because they sign it after their third season. The, that can be miles down the line. If Baker Mayfield signs an extension today, that new deal doesn't start for two years um, in terms of the new years on the deal. So um, you have to plan in advance and they're expecting it to be 210 million. It's 182. Uh, 182 million that's just 30 million for every team wiped off and you start looking at that's, a, that's like a billion dollars that's gone um, and, and that has a massive impact and next year at most it's going to be 208 million that that 
that was expected to be like 225 million. All this money has just vanished overnight and that's caused massive complications for teams. And we're not going to see this. Lots of people think, hey, the TV deal got signed. It's going to jump and go absolutely massive. And yeah, it's going to go up sort of a large chunk next year, but that's only slightly recovering from the COVID losses. It's still going to be down on where you expected it. Um, I think 2024 is looking like that's going to be the breakout year. So we've still got three years left before that big breakout. And it will never be a overnight, it just goes through the roof because that doesn't benefit the players because players that just signed a deal then miss out. And the, the cap then needs to continue to rise because every year they, they want that soft incremental increase. So last sort of... 10 years pre-COVID, it, it was about 6%. Every year, the cap went up about 6%. And, and I think we're going to see a similar trend once we get to sort of 2023. Yeah, and, and based off that view, it kind of gives me this slight inclination that we may continue to see this trend of teams using those void years since you're kind of working with the smaller cap in the first place. I know the Buccaneers were really the team that made it, you know, kind of a a media craze of look at these contract deals and how are they keeping all 22 of their starters? It's just a matter of how, how can you move this money down the pipeline? And I really started to see too, after looking up what some of these teams were doing, a lot of the money was being spread across 20, 2022, 2023. And then I'm pretty sure they'll figure out some way, you know, obviously of players that they're still going to keep on their team, how to move that money down till you get to that point, which, you know, may likely be 2024, when there is that new salary cap and that new TV deal that's really going to just jump the overall amount of money that teams can put on those contracts for, for new players. And then even in turn, it could potentially help out some rookies. So I know also with the Browns, uh, this is something I've seen you talk about in terms of finding that balance is the, you know, the rookie contracts are being signed. Uh, a lot of them starting to be finalized and that back turn of the roster, um, pretty much cancel each other's out of the players that you know don't make the 50 53 man roster your essentially your draft picks are going to take that money that you're not paying those players and a lot of Andrew Berry's I would say decisions over the past few years really has been leading up to this point you look at the defense a lot of contributors for the past two seasons have only been getting one year deals and that's giving a lot of rollover cap in terms of signing players like Nick Chubb, Denzel Ward, and Baker Mayfield, who all came in those first two days of the 2018 draft. And now you're looking at the situation where all these players are starting to get some money. Obviously, Miles Garrett was the first one to get that big contract. Now we're kind of in talks of who's next. And one of the biggest ones is Nick Chubb. So I've kind of already got your thoughts on this and how you feel about running back contracts. But What's your current perspective on the Nick Chubb situation? You know, does he get a contract? And if there's an offer, what may that look like? Yeah, so in terms of sort of running back deals, so we used to see the crazy deals, the Gurleys, the the Ezekiel Elliott's, the um, Bell, those guys, that's gone. Even Christian McCaffrey, that generation running back deal has gone it's one of those weird positions that we've seen rises in nearly every single position in the nfl where money keeps going up where running backs goes down because teams are running less running backs just aren't valuable in the modern nfl um every year we see an increase in passing because passing is what sensible teams do and if you want to win you pass more so naturally the nfl has massively devalued running backs because there's just so many good ones coming out of the draft that, quite frankly, James Robinson hit the ground running, looked amazing. And no one was sit, sat there around the draft going, this guy's going to be one of the best run, running backs and most productive. And he went undrafted. So they're really, really easy to bring in, plug and play, because college produces lots of good running backs. Um, and that has a knock-on impact in terms of what players get for their second deal. So we've seen a run, a, a run of running backs last year. So we saw Henry first, then Mixon, Cook, and Kamara. Effectively, they all got the same deal, which was $25 million over two years. And then there's some noise on the back end of their sort of, they're all four or five-year deals, and they might look different on paper, but effectively, it's a two-year 
guaranteed deal at 25 million. And then if they want to keep these players around after that, they get option years. And that's the key thing of looking at some of these contracts, like the Kamara one, I forget the final number, but it was silly. Um, it was just made up numbers plugged onto the back of this two year, 25, uh, 25 million deal. And effectively where that 25 million comes from is a franchise tag in the first year and then a franchise tag in the second year. Um, and that, that was what Derek Henry's deal was based on and everyone else followed suit. So if you're going to take that logic and apply it to Nick Chubb, the um, franchise tag for the 2022 season, because obviously we don't need it for um, this uh, season, it'd be next season where you'd be tagging him and looking to do that. For running backs is going to be um, 12.8 million. Then you times that franchise tag by 120% for what it would be in 2023. You're at about 28 million there. Um, so they round it up a tiny bit. So I, I think if you wanted to extend Nick Chubb, you're looking at 29, 30 million over two years. Um, there'd be noise on the back end, but that, that'd be effectively the guaranteed money that you'd be putting in front of him and his agent. I, I think there's a, the smart way was what the Green Bay Packers did with Aaron Jones though last year, where they just allowed him to test the market. And everyone's like, oh, he's, he's a really good running back. Obviously, we're not talking about him in the Chubb level of discussion, but he, he's a really good running back. And no one wanted him. Because no one, no other team wants to pay a running back on someone else's team because they've seen the decline in position, the health concerns around a running back. They hit a cliff. And you've got to remember, you're not paying Nick Chubb for what he's done in 2020, in 2019, in 2018. That's done. That's in the past. You pay a player for what they're going to do in the future. If you want to pay a player for what they've done in the past, that's how you stay as a bad team. And then you look at like the New England Patriots. Often they're criticized through the whole Bill Belichick regime. Why would they get rid of that player? Why would they do this? Why would they do that? And then that player never performs post when they move on from him because you never pay a guy for what he's done in the past. You pay for what he's going to do for you tomorrow. And that's the really important thing to remember that just because someone's been good in the past, running back's the most common position where they hit a cliff and they start producing down. And I would think the smart way, if you're going to deal with, um, Nick Chubb is actually just to transition tag him. So it'd be 10.3 million um, after this season. You just put a transition tag on him. And what you're saying to him is, hey, you go out and find your market. Whatever a team wants to pay you, the Browns will have an option to either match that deal, which I don't think would get to the 30 million over two. I can't see it getting near there. Or if you don't want to match it, you can allow him to walk. And if no one offers him, you, he's playing for you at 10.3 million. I would say that would be the smartest way of doing it. You allow, you don't take away the option from him to go and find his value in the market. You still keep that ownership of, hey, you can match that offer if you want to match it. And you just give yourself the best of both worlds. Um, I don't think there'd be a massive market out there because he's a running back. And also, the other side of the equation is, if you pay Nick Chubb, who are you taking away from that? And this is the thing that lots of NFL fans don't understand with the salary cap. It's not, you can't look at it in a silo and go pay Nick Chubb. You're actively saying, let's cut 12 million pounds out the roster in another position or 15 million with potentially a 30 million over two deal. So you've got to make a 15 million cut. So is that Batonio you're getting rid of? You, you, you've got to get rid of some players as well to pay Baker Mayfield. So are we just saying, hey, let's get rid of most of the offensive line and we'll pay Baker Mayfield and Nick Chubb? Well, are either of them going to be as good if your O-line, you've just got rid of three of your starters because you can't afford to keep Jack Conklin, you can't afford to keep Petonio, you can't afford to keep Tretter. Does, does the O-line is as good? And if the O-line falls apart, is Nick Chubb's production not as good and Baker Mayfield's production not as good? So it's really, really difficult question. We had those high picks, Denzel Ward, Miles Garrett, Baker Mayfield, but when they're coming up to be paid, that is a difficult equation to balance everything across the roster. For sure. And I love the perspective of the point that you said that contracts shouldn't be based off of what you did previously but what value and production can you do for me in the future? And 
so regarding the numbers, I typically when I look at the contracts, you know, I, I do look at the fluff a little bit. For me, the biggest thing I like to emphasize is basically the annual average value. So, you know, whatever the total dollar is divided by the years. And that's roughly what you're looking at. And then, of course, every contract, no matter what position, all teams give themselves out. So like you said, when you look at Kamara, who got five years, 75 million, Dalvin Cook, five years, 63. And I mean, I feel like Zeke is the one weird contract but then again when you look at jerry jones who just has money to throw away who spent two years ago in the draft on a yacht (laughs) um you know he gave him six years 90 million but they're all all the good deals i would say they're all around this kind of benchmark of 12 million when you look at aaron jones that average annual salary is 12 million so two years 24 uh derrick henry two years 25 at 12 and a half million dalvin cook uh 12.6 12.6 million so it's all around that range and then you kind of get to the unicorns of the situation Christian McCaffrey who I would say is deserving of that deal obviously he dealt with injuries last year but prior to that the man had a thousand rushing yards and a thousand receiving yards and was pretty much the Panthers offense so when you just look at the type of impact he had just just on Christian McCaffrey the really interesting thing to note is so no one's ever going to claim that Mike Davis is better than Christian McCaffrey but a really really interesting thing happened when Christian McCaffrey got injured what happened was the Panthers decided actually we're going to give less touches to the running back and we're going to give more touches to the wide receivers and what happened they won more games and so this isn't a debate of hey and no no one's going to have a straight face and claim that Mike Davis is better than Christian McCaffrey But what you do when you take Christian McCaffrey out of that offense is you pass more because you're not thinking, oh, we've got Christian McCaffrey, we need to use him. You're thinking, right, we need to score points. And that is effectively what can happen with teams is it's the sunk cost mentality. Hey, we've paid a running back all this money. We need to give him all these touches. And when you take away those touches and give them to wide wide receivers, um, tight ends, rather than a running back, you score more points. Because you're playing to score rather than you're thinking, hey, Christian McCaffrey is really good. We need to give him touches. So I, I think there's a really interesting part of like game theory and the way the mind works that they see a player like Christian McCaffrey and go, he is elite. No one's ever going to deny that. But if you take away the touches from him and go, hey, we're going to throw the ball more at DJ Moore, we're going to use our wide receivers actually what you're producing is more value and more chance of winning the game. And that's an important thing that to remember that we saw it during the season, the Titans game is a perfect example. Um, that was billed as like, hey, which of the two best running backs is Chubb versus Henry? And what happened is the Browns stopped the Titans run game and the Browns didn't try run the ball. They went, actually, we're going to pass it. And you just saw an absolute assault because... When you pass the ball more, you win more. And further on we got to the season, I don't know whether it's Kevin Stefanski's side. Trust in Baker more. Baker got better and the Browns won a lot more. If we'd have continued the way we were running early in the season, we wouldn't have been ending the way we were. And that's really important that sunk cost mentality is real. And if you pay a running back, often teams are running for the sake of it. And Cowboys, perfect example. Tony Pollard is a much more efficient running back than Ezekiel Elliott. There's no way they're going to put Pollard out there instead of Ezekiel Elliott because Ezekiel Elliott's got all this money. Um, So paying a running back can have massive consequences because teams, you would like to think that teams are out there using every edge in the pursuit of winning. Unfortunately, it's not the case. Yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's about finding that fine balance between running and passing the ball. And the Browns overall, as the season progressed, you started to see that. And I do think that the injury to Nick Chubb was part of the reason why you started to see the game be catered more towards throwing the ball and putting more of that emphasis on Baker Mayfield's ability to make plays. Also, too, when you listen to his most recent press conference that he had, this week for mandatory minicamp is that he said that he just felt more comfortable because he had more opportunities of getting reps. When you look at the fact there was no OTAs, there was no minicamps last year. There was a, I would say a modified training camp because it's not even your traditional training camp that they experienced last year. And we're trying to learn a new system that's very tough without having enough reps. And, um, you know, 
you started to see with Baker Mayfield that he was getting more comfortable in the offense and that put less emphasis on the need to, you know, run the ball with Nick Chubb every single time. But also I would say Kevin Stefanski does a good job of finding balance of, okay, now it's time to, you know, attack the field vertically. Here's time to run the ball. And Nick Chubb's role, at least I would say within this offense, really is to establish, you know, the run game early because what that does is that it helps open up the rest of the playbook, understanding that the outside zone is still the foundation of Stefanski's offensive scheme. Once you're able to force some safeties to play a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage, bring more players into the box, or that just that hesitation of that he may break a big run after, you know, a few a few chunk runs within the game that opens up play action passing down the field where you can use Odo Beckham or tight end. I mean, we even seen it last year with Kadero Hodge. So when I look at Nick Chubb, I see a, a value of somewhere like around 14. I know that may seem high, but if if you're looking from a, you know, we're only going to get, you know, two years, maybe three years max before we either use it out or even think about exercising one. I mean, when you really look at it, what's that? 42, I think it is. So um, I said like a four year, 58 million. Obviously, you, you, I'm not looking at it in a perspective of you're paying out this whole deal, but you want to be somewhere within that range of. I feel like 13 and a half to 14 may be that sweet spot in terms of that annual value that you're giving a player. Because even if you're at 13 and a half, that's only 27 million over two years, which is definitely reasonable considering that a lot of times these players don't play out this whole contract and a lot of it's kind of fluff on the back end to make it sound bigger. Yeah, the key thing is just all that guaranteed money um, at the start of it and sort of how, how many years are guaranteed what sort of the dead cap and the out and and looking at that and it, it really comes down to that equation because um, even though the agents are on Twitter and that's the stuff that Rappaport and um, Chef to get excited about the big numbers it's like it's it's why always these contracts come out and I'm like well, well I don't know what the contract is yet because you've got no idea when you you see the big numbers what the actual deal is because it comes down to that guarantees and when you start looking at that you're like hey right it's a two-year deal of x amount of money and then you've got three option years if you look at like hooper um the way that deal's done it's like 23 million over the first two years is sort of cash the actual real money given to him but it's heavily back loaded so if you look at it from salary cap purposes it doesn't look like that because they've done it in a way to push that money, a bit like shopping on a credit card into the future. Um, and that sort of is really unusual how they've done it. Um, it's sort of what teams would do when they're right up against the cap rather than doing it where the Browns are well ahead of the cap at the moment. Um, and that it's why they've created, it looks like they've got lots of salary cap space because the rollover is really high. But what they're doing is just shopping constantly on the credit card and they're having to leave this cash almost in the bank to keep paying off the credit card debt so um that's why they've done that but just on one thing um it's a really interesting one on play action passing because i assumed the quality of efficient play action passing it's just the logical thing if you're watching the game that would make sense but it was fascinating ben baldwin um, did a, a long piece and he's looked at it over several years and there's no evidence to say that a better running back or running the ball more leads to more efficient play action passing. And it, it's just these sort of concepts that you would just assume it, it logic says, if you run the ball more play action passing should be better, but it, the data doesn't back that up. So it's, it's a really interesting one. And I think, I had a chat with Anthony Reinhardt and Jake Burns um, last weekend. We, we were just discussing first downs and um, passing down on more on first down. That, that That's the next edge that the Browns need to go after. And um, Nick Chubb's still got a beneficial role in the team. He is one of the best pure runners in the NFL. Um, and there's no taking that away from him. But it, by having more passing, we can get these really light boxes because that's that's effectively what you're chasing in the run game. How do we get less people in the box? Because the minute you get less people in the box, 
if you think Nick Chubb's good now, let, let's give him light boxes and then we can see in, an insane level of production. So getting these wide receivers downfield, opening up that passing game is going to allow Nick Chubb to do stuff that he's never done before, which seems crazy to say because he has been so good for those two and a half years um, that he's been playing um, post getting rid of Carlos Hyde. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't think we've seen the ceiling for Nick Chubb. Yeah, I think the the fact that there's still room for him to grow his game is a factor that he can benefit from in terms of getting that second contract. You know, rather rather that you know that annual value be a little bit more than what you see out of potentially Cook or Aaron Jones or even Derrick Henry. And I would I would probably say Derrick Henry is more of the catalyst of the entire running back market. Cause you're not going to see situations anymore where someone hands out a Todd Gurley deal. Cause I feel like the LA Rams pretty much showed shown everyone if you give a deal to a quarterback too soon, it usually doesn't work out. And if you give a running back too much money, it usually doesn't work out just given the shelf life of the position. So I, I feel like the NFL as a whole has transitioned past that. And the LA Rams were pretty much the pony um, for, for everyone else in that situation when it came out to contracts. But now you'll start to see, you know, how, how do we effectively give someone the guaranteed money we're looking for? And just in the situation that the contract doesn't work out, what out do we need to have in order to, not be in a situation or forced to either keep this player, cut him, um, and have a huge cap hit, or be in a situation, even though it's a quarterback, look at Brock Osweiler when he was with the, I think it was the Texans he was with, and how horrible that contract was that the Browns traded for him and they got a second round pick. And the value that you really get from a second round pick is way more important than what Brock Osweiler was offering the Texans at the time. So just bad contracts overall and not giving yourself proper outs is is really the biggest thing that fans should be following when this contract talks and all these extensions start to come, you know, closer and closer. So when you start that transition, something that you've already kind of highlighted is once you give a player some money, you're going to have to take money away from somewhere else. So, you know, we'll we'll get to more specifics of that towards the end of the show. But if you pay Nick Chubb, there's naturally going to be this conversation of can you pay Denzel Ward too, knowing for a fact you need to pay Baker Mayfield because you don't win Super Bowls unless you have a franchise quarterback that you have confidence in that can make the plays in those big time moments. So over the past couple of days, as they spoke to the media, Denzel Ward said that his agent has had talks with the front office. Um, You know, there's no deal imminent or anything like that. I'm pretty sure there's just a discussion of where the Browns at. What are they asking for? How do we meet in the middle? And we'll we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But they still have the fifth year option. So there's no rush. So when you look at the other corners in the league and I would say there's probably a a good consensus of like who the top 10 to top 12 corners are. And Denzel Ward definitely meets that criteria when he's healthy, which is a very important thing to look at in terms of his contract. So you look at Jair Alexander, who's definitely a top five corner. The Packers just exercised his fifth-year option. That's going to be for $13.2 million this year. Jalen Ramsey obviously has the biggest contract of all corners, which is deserving, but $20 million is a lot to play a corner, especially when you have to play other positions. And then you start to kind of see this mosh of other players um, that you would say are like the top corners in the league. You look at Stephon Gilmore, um, Xavier Howard, James Bradbury, who really came on last year. Uh, Shaquille Griffin, and I wouldn't say Shaquille Griffin is in that same class of player, but he got a solid contract from the Jaguars. So you look at Stephon Gilmore, who got paid back in 2017, his average yearly salary is about $13 million, and he's going to play out this contract most likely, um, you know, unless he gets traded from the Patriots. Shaquille Griffin is right around that range at 13.3. And then James Bradbury and Xavier Howard is a little bit closer at 14.5 for Bradbury and $15 million for Xavier Howard. And I would say that's probably the ideal range for Denzel Ward, just because there's so much uncertainty of how much health he gives you. Like if you're just going based off of medians, you know, based off the top performers at the position, easily you're looking at a a four year deal worth 65 million. So that's about 16 million a year. So I would probably say 32, somewhere 30 around that range over two years. But I feel like it's kind of tough to 
guarantee him that much money on a yearly basis if you don't fully feel confident in him being healthy and playing out that contract without missing significant time because he's already dealt with that issue since being drafted in 2018. Yeah, I think the interesting one when I was looking at what a uh, Denzel Ward extension would look like um, because I did a series on sort of this upcoming class um, earlier in the offseason, the one that I found fascinating was the Xavier Howard deal. And Xavier Howard got paid in 2019. And there seemed to be no discount for the fact that he he had missed basically exactly the same amount of games as Denzel Ward within a few percent. Um, and the fact that he got paid still just makes me think that if you're Ward's agent, you're not going to take a discount. And that's why I think he's going to be right up there in that sort of eight and a half to nine percent. Um, I think you probably beat Tredavious White at 17.25 million a year. I don't, I, he might be just short of Jalen Ramsey and Marlon Humphreys, but I, I think you're looking at 18, 19 million a year. Um, I, I don't think you're going to get a discount on Denzel Ward. Um, I, I if if I'm the team, if I'm the Browns front office, I'm not signing him this offseason. There's two reasons why I wouldn't do that. So one, I want to see he's healthy. And if he's healthy, then great. Does a full season, then I'm, I'm feeling a lot better about handing out that contract. And the other thing is, you've got lots of good corners. So you've obviously got Newsom who you've drafted. Um, we don't know what Greedy Williams is going to be. Um, and I there, still think he's an- legit. I just, I just want to throw oh, it out there. A lot of hate is given to Greedy. The kid played a rookie year, which was tough, where the whole overall – team didn't succeed and then he didn't play a second year so he's on a rookie deal he's cheap I don't understand the whole thing about people thinking that he's not good anymore because he hasn't played a lot the talent's still there and we have man coverage ability rather he's the number two or the number three that's very useful knowing that players in the secondary have gotten injured over the past few seasons yeah, and you've also got Troy Hill. That's he—he he was always solid outside, a bit like your sort of Terrence Mitchell. He—he he became elite when he moved to the slot, but he—he's a solid player. And it, it, there's no pressure, I don't think, to extend Denzel Ward if it doesn't work out. And obviously, hey, I—I I hope his health holds up and you, you can extend him. But I don't. If you were were to sort of you have a great year out of the other two. Say Greedy Williams comes back and has a healthy, great year. Denzel Ward has a semi-injured year and Newsom has a great rookie year. You might decide that actually paying Denzel Ward 19 million a year isn't in your best interest as a team because you might decide, hey, we want to pay Nick Chubb, we want to pay Baker Mayfield instead. Um, And we might want to pay Wyatt Teller. Um, And these decisions are going to be really interesting. And that, and that's why I'm happy to wait another year on lots of these deals. For me, I, I wouldn't sign any of these kids this year, which um, I'm, I'm usually the one banging the drum going, no, pay them early, pay them early. I think there's a really good reason why, hey, don't pay Chubb, don't pay Ward, don't pay Baker this year, don't pay White Teller, don't pay Njoku this year. And just almost let, let's get that extra year because there is so much exciting young talent on this Browns roster. You can't keep all of it. That's one of the important things to understand. You can't keep all of these great young players as well as the veterans that you've got. But why not wait an extra year and get all of this extra information? And you can see none of them are sort of slam dunk decisions like Miles Garrett was. You pay Miles Garrett. There was never going to be a discussion on that. Whereas with all the rest, there is legitimate discussions. And if there's a discussion, you may as well just wait that year and then do the deal in 12 months time if you want to. Or or maybe during the bye week, something like that. Yeah, and and the teams to look at, when you look at teams that's been in the Super Bowl the past years, with the exception of the Patriots, obviously when you got the greatest quarterback of all time, you always got a chance. But when you look at the Chiefs, you look at the San Francisco 49ers, even though they didn't win, you look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, typically whoever your most productive veterans are, those are the players that you give the contracts to because you know that's the core of either your offense or your defense. And then how they mesh the rest of the roster is – You have to make some tough decisions at certain positions where they don't get as much money or or star power. But once you start to notice the team can be very competitive, some people are willing to take a pay cut for that opportunity of getting a ring. Now, if you're looking at the transition of what the Browns have been, which was an organization that always struggled, never had any continuity within the front office or the coaching staff, 
And now you're finally getting hints of that this season. One that you have the same coach and general manager who's on the same page. Uh, Baker Mayfield is playing underneath the same offensive coordinator and the same head coach in consecutive seasons. So now you start to see that there's a little bit more confidence that there's going to be continuity down the line. And that's where some people may be willing to take um, either a restructured deal or you have free agents that can come in that are willing to take less money because they see an opportunity to take a ring. That could potentially be a situation with Jadavion Clowney. Now, that's that's down the line. We first got to see, you know, can he stay healthy? How does he perform this season? And is he really going to chase all that money that he's looking for? We don't we don't know that yet, but he could potentially be someone like that that's willing to take less money in order to strive for a ring. But in that type of situation, the Browns have to make the AFC championship. That's the only way you get in that situation where you can have a luxury like the Bucks or the 49ers or the Chiefs at the time where people are willing to take less in order to get to that situation. So overall, there's going to be some questions of which of these veterans that have a decent contract now, um, are they willing to take sometimes a significant pay cut for a ring or are we going to have to move on from them and have a younger player? So uh, I would say a perfect example of this is Sheldon Richardson. So the Browns saved over $10 million in cap space by cutting him. And they only have a little bit over $1.6 million in dead cap. You look at the new contract he just agreed to with the Vikings. It's only for a year and $3.6 million. That's right in the range of Malik Jackson, who has $3.75 and Andrew Billings, who signed a one-year deal two years ago for $3.5 million. So if you have two starters that got paid the exact same deal Shota Richardson got from the Vikings, there was no need to pay him $12 million knowing that you had to hand out other contracts. So you're already kind of seeing the framework that Andrew Barry knows he has to work with in order to keep those core veterans together and makeshift other players that have smaller contracts to keep this roster as talented as possible, but it may not be the big names that everyone's used to. No, and it's one that if you look at some of the most talented rosters that actually go and compete for Super Bowls year in, year out, having five players all earning, say, three, three and a half million is usually a better position than having one player that's earning 15 million, just because it's that middle level of your talent that is so important across the whole roster. And what happens with a team that has several players earning three, four million rather than a couple of players earning big bucks is that if they get an injury, it keeps moving. Whereas if you put all of your money and resource into one or two, three, four elite players, they could be elite. But you saw it with the the Falcons were a perfect example when they got to the Super Bowl. It was the most expensive two players in, I think, the entire Super Bowl era um, that a team had put in, certainly over the last 10, 15 years. And what had to happen is you had to have Matt Ryan and Julio Jones playing at an MVP level to even achieve what they want in a season of competing for a Super Bowl. And it's like you can have a player that plays really, really well and not being in that MVP discussion but you want you you need to be able to be great and being able to compete for a Super Bowl. If you're having to rely on MVP level play from players just to get there and even like compete in the postseason, that's not a great position to be. You want to spread that risk across the team and have a really really strong team and a really strong roster than putting everything into certain players. And I'd come out really early in the off season. I, I think I was talking about even when the season going into last season and I was saying, Hey, this is Sheldon Richardson's last season with the Browns. Um, and I just never thought as soon as his deal was signed by John Dorsey, it, it was always designed to be a two year deal. And lots of people said, no, he's our best defensive tackle. And it was like, well, it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter if he's your most expensive, whatever it, he's got no protection in his contract. Um, because all the guaranteed money is gone, um, in cash and, he, he was just, it didn't make sense to the team. And the same way they don't seem to value linebackers um, is something they, they're piling resources into it, obviously, but they're not going out spending lots of money, spending really high picks. JOK sort of a, a linebacker safety hybrid. We can have that discussion another time, but 
I think defensive tackle is going to follow that trend. I think they're going to put some money into it, but you're just going to see two, three good players rather than they're not going to be chasing an elite. Obviously, if you pick up an an Aaron Donald light in the third round, you're not going to suddenly allow him to walk after his rookie deal, but they're not going to go chase that player in the top first round. I just don't think that's where they're going to go. I think it's a position where you can go lighter, where they're going to bring in good players. They've got lot, lots of them here. No, no one's particularly safe. Billings has a guaranteed contract. Um, Malik Jackson has a guaranteed contract. Everyone else, I'd, I'd be slightly worried. Even Jordan Elliott, that they took relatively high. Um, there's so many dudes there that if, if other guys are playing better than Jordan Elliott, Jordan Elliott's not guaranteed a roster spot, which seems crazy to say when there was a lot of hype around him 12 months ago. That I think he's got a good chance. If you're talking guaranteed and I'm 95% sure that he's going to be on the roster, I'm, I'm, I'm a no because they've obviously keep bringing in names. And if they keep bringing in names, Tommy Togiai, um, uh, McDowell, um, they want to overturn every stone and see what's out there. So uh, it's an interesting one to keep an eye on. Yeah, and when you look at the pretty much everyone else after Jackson and Billings, the biggest contract you do have is Jordan Elliott, and he his salary cap hit for this year is only a million dollars. So everyone else is either you know making a veteran minimum, or I think the highest one was Tommy Togia, and his was I think maybe somewhere like eight sixty or eight fifty for the year. So Marvin Wilson is right around that range. Malik McDowell is only around like six sixty or something like that. So a lot of these players that you expect to be contributors, you know, depending on how the training camp competition rolls out. They're, it's not costing you a lot of money. And even if those players, let's say in a situation that they keep five, I'm, I may be in the minority, but I, I could definitely see a situation where they keep Jackson Billings, Elliot, uh, Togia, Marvin, Marvin Wilson. And then I would say Malik McDowell is more of a hybrid, like a defensive tackle slash in. And that may have a little bit more value for them, depending on how he competes in training camp. Because he's just so big of an individual that he could probably be someone, uh, I believe it's a like a 4A or like a 4T technique, basically, where you line up on the inside shoulder of the tackle or you line up right over the tackle um, a little bit further out where you could have some of that flexibility and say like a, a Nash car package where typically you have four defensive ends on the offensive line. If he can carve out a role, I think he can be someone that makes his roster if he doesn't end up on the practice squad. But when you just take into all that money, so if you're looking at four players that's making under a million dollars, now you have, what's that? Uh, I would say somewhere under eight plus four. So basically you have five players that were going to equate to what you're going to pay one person in Sheldon Richardson. And those numbers, like it, it just makes sense because now the talent gap you have after that player, in this case, Sheldon Richardson, is go- isn't going to be ex- significant as a drop-off. Because let's say in a situation you keep Sheldon Richardson and you're paying him $12 million for the season and then it's just his last year with the team. If he gets injured, now you're just stuck with a, a bunch of guys that pretty much were given a veteran minimum and you didn't you don't really know if they were any good and if you keep him do you draft togi do you feel the need to um essentially give marvin wilson a three-year deal that he got and think he can become a contributor do you take a chance on malik mcdowell because now you have three veterans that you know are going to give you at least decent production at that position on the interior you you don't have to now face those questions of we got bodies at the at the position. We saved ourselves money. And worst case scenario, if you don't keep everyone, that just goes towards the money that you were saving in the first place to hand out another big contract. Yeah, and it's it's certainly something with the defensive line in particular, because if you look at the O-line, you look at the quarterback, you look at wide receivers, you look at DBs, you expect those players to play 100% of snaps. Whereas you look at the defensive line, you don't expect them guys to play sort of more than like 70%. And you almost, you pay Miles Garrett, but with the acceptance that for three out of 10 snaps, he's not going to be on the field. And 
that's obviously something you then need to balance and you need to have that depth behind because there's no point just having an awesome first four players on the defensive line and then whenever they're rotating out you've just got some nobody wandering out there and you get smashed because what's going to happen is they're going to be a lot more sort of cautious um while you've got your stars out there and then whenever they see a weakness that smart offensive team's going to go after them and so it's a really interesting one that you almost need that depth on the D-line, which you just don't need at other positions because there's not that rotational level. Obviously, you need injury cover, but it's it's different with a defensive line. So, yeah, for me, let's have that depth of talent um, because, yeah, players are going to go down, but as well, they're going to be rotated off the field. Yeah, and Javian Clowney actually spoke on that today in a, a media press conference. He said that having the ability to rotate multiple guys, one, it keeps everyone on the defensive line fresh. You're going to get a consistent pass rush. But we have people that's all with kind of within that same talent bubble where there's not a significant drop off. Now you're in a situation where you can consistently rotate them and get constant pressure. Look at the San Francisco 49ers when they made it to the Super Bowl. That front, I would really say their front seven because their linebacking core with Fred Warner and other guys they had out there um, were really good. But that front four they had, and then the three behind them where you could bring in Solomon Thomas, um, Eric Armstead was still there. You had uh, DeForest Buckner. You have all these players that are super talented, and they spent a first-round pick on the defensive line like every year for like four years, but like they were consistently getting pressure because that was the division they were playing in where teams that could throw the ball with success and what's the easiest way to disrupt a team that can throw the ball with success is to get pressure from the defensive line. So it, it makes sense where you have players that you can rotate and there not be a significant drop off. That's why I feel like when you look at that final 53, you start to have conversations of Porter Gustin, Malik McDowell, um, Curtis Weaver. These are going to be a lot of the players of who gives us the most value in passing situations. And that may trump why you'll keep one of those players, um, you know, versus someone else. Um, but, you know, that's something that we'll have to see at training camp once we understand fully, you know, who really understands the playbook and what's their role on the defense. So as we look at just other contracts and you've hinted it throughout the show, who or what positions do you think um, we could see Andrew Barry move on from? Some that I've already kind of had in the back of my mind and one that almost everyone knows is we're going to see some type of turnover in the wide receiver room, potentially, you know, the tight ends. Is there going to be a debate versus Austin Hooper versus David Njoku in terms of do you keep Hooper? Do you give Njoku another contract? And I would almost say there's going to be a guarantee that some change happens along the offensive line as well. Yeah, so we can just bounce around some um, positions here. So let's start at quarterback. So this is Case Keenum's last season. Um He's got a two-year guaranteed deal, so there's no way he's going. There's been talks of, hey, is, is he going to be traded? He's not. No one's trading um, all that money for him. So Case Keenum's here for one more year, but he's gone after this. Um, they're either going to go really cheap on a veteran, a couple of million, or they'll draft someone. And that could be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Running back, this is the last year when you're going to see Chubb and Hunt. Um, one of them two is definitely gone next year um, because you're not – they're just not going to be able to keep piling money into that. Um, they've obviously extended um, Hunt because it gives them the option that they don't have to pay Nick Chubb because they've still got an, a, a sort of a great and above um, back if they go the other way. But also there's no real guarantees in Hunt's deal, so they can walk away from that. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the O-line, I think this is going to be the last year when all them big names are back. I think over the next three years after this year, you're going to lose one of each year. So you're probably, this I guess is Tretter's final year. I would guess next year is probably going to be um, Betonio's final year. And it could be Conklin's final year, or it could be the one after that. And um, it's a catchphrase that Andrew Berry keeps using every time he does, and he talks about contracts, is sequencing. And the idea of sequencing that he talks about is, and the easiest way to explain it is with our tackles. So they drafted Chedrick Wills at left tackle and they signed a free agent at Jack Conklin at right tackle. That means you've got one cheap guy and one expensive guy. 
And then what's going to happen after you draft a rookie is, hey, year five, um, his fifth-year option kicks in, and obviously the extension then that will hopefully come. That means you've got to look at your right tackle and go, hey, we need to go cheaper here. We'll replace him with a draft pick. And you're going to constantly see this turnover on the roster that, hey, Jack Conklin, best right tackle in the NFL last year. That won't stop them. If they need, or if they want to pay Jedrick Wills, they need to make the cut somewhere else. And you're regularly going to see that in the same position room. They'll just transition someone on. So, um, yeah, Jack Conklin's got two years left on his deal. Can I um, chime in for a second? Yeah. The player that I would say a lot of fans need to look out for is Drew Forbes. He falls under the radar because, one, he opted out last year. He was drafted in the sixth round in Dorsey's last year. And he hasn't really played much. But in the situation that he shows the traits you need, now you feel a lot more confident of having a succession plan behind Batonio. And then also, you already kind of have a developmental player within James Hudson of someone that replaces someone like Chris Hubbard in terms of always having that swing tackle of a player that has guard tackle flexibility If so, in a situation that someone goes down, which we saw last year. Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be an interesting fight between uh, Hud- um, between Forbes and Michael Dunn. For me, they're the two probably battling for the backup guard spot. It could even be Hubbard that they peg as that backup guard spot because um, they really like Taylor. Um, they they could decide to keep Taylor um, as your fourth tackle, and then you make Hudson your third tackle. So th- there's a lot of nice talent behind this starting line especially on the o-line and then that's really promising and it's really hard to gauge from the outside world because you just don't see any of them it's not like you sort of you see a lot of donovan people's jones and you're like yeah i think this guy can do it or even hodge you're like you see those flashes you just don't get that with the o-line and then you've got to trust the coaching staff that you got rid of who and then you're just going to throw this guy out there but it's like hey if someone's going to have an idea of when someone's ready I'm, I'm, I'm trusting um, that o, O-line room because hey, um, Callahan has, has given us no reason to doubt him. If uh, there's an heir to the great Dante Scarnecchia of the New England Patriots, then uh, Callahan is the guy. Um, you touched on tight end room. After this year, either Hooper's gone or Njoku's gone. Um, that's going to be an interesting one. And I really, really rate the upside of Njoku. But at the same time, what he caught, was it 19 passes during the regular season last year? That's not numbers you want from your tight end one. So he's he's improved in the blocking game, but we need to see that week in, week out production as a receiver. As that number one. Um, So Hooper's the certain favorite at the moment, just because the state of his contract. Um, and the fact that he is under contract post next year. But I, I certainly think Inchoku is in with a fight. Wide receivers, obviously, the interesting debate. You, you, you touched on it. Um, we know Pete Smith has his opinions. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, this is one where it's almost been frustrating that there's not really been that much investment into it in the last two years because we know the end is coming. You can't extend Jarvis Landry and OBJ. So it's one or the other, um, or it's neither. Um, it's not both of them here long-term just because of their age and everything, the money they're on. Um, and that that's going to be the, the difficult decision because one of them has the ability to be an elite playmaker and one of them is really, really good at what he does. But what he does is suited to a team that plays 11 personnel or has a slot receiver, not a team that plays two tight end sets quite often. So that's going to be a really difficult decision. And um, John Colosimo, uh, nothing but the dogs podcast does. He made a really, really good point earlier in the off season. It's not so much about the great moves this front office makes. The first time we'll really get to judge them is when they start making these really difficult moves. Richardson sort of gave us an, a look into where we think they might go. But I think next season is going to be the really, really obvious one for what they plan for the roster long term. Because it's not so much gutting it, but it's got to go through a really quick evolution where 
they've almost got to move on from lots of players, especially on the offense. We've got by far the most expensive offense in the NFL and have, I think, last year as well. Um, they've got to get rid of people and bring up rookies to have a much bigger role within the team. Um, and that's rookie contract players, not just first-year players. Um, and that is going to give us an indication of, well, where, where do they want to go? Where are they going to invest? And it, a room that is primed for turning over. And I, I think Higgins versus Landry is probably an interesting debate this season. Um, if you, I would say there's two players that are competing for a spot. Lots of people look at OBJ versus Landry. I think Landry versus Higgins is a very real um, look. If Higgins steps up and that and really delivers on that potential and chemistry he has with Baker, then you're sitting there going, hey, we've got Donovan Peoples-Jones, we've got Anthony Schwartz, hopefully we've got OBJ, right? It's Higgins or Landry who is more of your slower receiver. Um, and for me, if, if one's going to be on 5 million, one's going to be on 15 million, it's not hard to make that decision. You've heard it here first from Jack Duffin. Next year, there's going to be blood in the street. So in um, those those tough, <laughs> tough decisions is really what makes a GM a good GM. Because um, obviously a lot of fans don't want to see certain players go. Pete has a consistent argument of, are you just going to pay someone because they offer, quote unquote, leadership to the team? If that's their biggest reasoning of why you should keep you know, keep the player versus what they do, you know, in terms of their personnel fit or their scheme fit, whatever the case may be. But the whole evaluation of if I choose this person, one, who am I releasing in order to keep them? And who am I going to add or who have I been developing to release the, you know, to cover the person that I just released? Uh, the, the greatest example was just on the offensive line that we talked about with either Forbes or Dunn. You look at Alex Taylor Hudson in terms of, or e even I'm pretty much pretty sure that it's going to be um, uh, Harris. Uh, what's Harris's first name? The center, Nick Harris. Uh, he, he's pretty much the, the follow-up for J.C. Treader. Like that's almost a given. So you look at that situation of who's been in the reins of that we're developing to take over this role. And you kind of see that situation of Higgins has somewhat been that player since Landry's been on the team that's kind of been maturing into that same type of role where you cut some money somewhere, shave a little bit of fat, and you replace it with something else. So there, there, there's going to be some changes. Not everyone's going to like what happens. But even with the 53-man roster, some players that you don't think are going to get cut, gets cut because that's just, that's just how the game goes. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see really after this season how the team, you know, holds together because you really want to make sure that you keep those core veterans together and at a reasonable, a reasonable salary, I would say. You know, obviously there's going to be situations on key positions such as quarterback and corner where typically you have to pay over market value sometimes to keep a player because a clear-cut lockdown corner or clear-cut franchise quarterback are the two hardest things to come by in the NFL. Um, we already have a franchise pass rusher, Miles Garrett, so that's why he got his money without any question. So now you got to you know, really find that balance of making sure I cut some fat in some other places so that I can keep this shiny toy, but is the shiny toy going to give me the production I'm looking for? And I feel like Jack did a great job of really emphasizing that. So yeah, just just on the opportunity cost that you've sort of laid out and to throw some names in there of like good good discussions to sort of really illustrate it to people. Um, it's a poll I put up on Twitter and I, I was interested what would the results be um, because looking at one wide receiver and one running back and sort of saying, hey, here's the real life example. Would you rather have um, in 2022, so ne not this coming season, next season, would you rather have Jarvis Landry and Kareem Hunt on your team, or would you rather have Higgins and Nick Chubb? And, and that's one of them where you're sitting there and going, right, this is the same amount of money. You're keeping one or the other. And the poll, I think, came back like 70% Nick Chubb and Richard Higgins. And Browns fans in the past, if you said, hey, I think we need to move on from Jarvis Landry, are like, no, not, no, don't want to do it. 
And when you ask them that question of going, hey, now let's balance it up and say, hey, if you want to keep Jarvis Landry, you, you lose Nick Chubb. Then it's like, oh, okay, well, we're okay with losing Jarvis Landry. And that's sort of the important thing to sort of understand is it always comes down to the opportunity cost. Any single player you can keep on the roster. You can probably keep any like three players, but the minute you do that, there might if, if you're keeping one, you might be cutting two, three players to do that. And um, no, it's, it's just a really, really good example to sort of illustrate of, hey, you're keeping these two or those two. And, and they have real life discussions. I promise you, Andrew Berry, Paul D. Podesta, Kevin Stefanski are sitting there and having those same discussions and everything with the salary cap and roster construction is all three-year windows. Lots of people get caught up in a, hey, look at it in one-year sample. Give yourself the three-year look and you're always thinking, but we're really lucky. We've now got a roster that is so full of talent that we've got second-round picks that aren't going to be starters. How crazy is that? We used to sit there and it was like, it was cut down day at the end of the season. And we're like, oh, maybe we'll find a starter that gets cut from some other team. And it's like, it's <laughs> none of that now. It's yeah. nothing. Yeah. And that's, that's definitely a good situation to be in. So when you look at training camp coming up, because after this week, and I'm pretty sure to, well, after you guys see the podcast on Friday, mandatory mini camp will be have wrapped up by then. And then we're going about six weeks until training camp starts. So, you know, looking away from the dollars, um, you know, everyone likes the money and I know you, you know, you love your money, <laughs> but um, are there any training camp battles that you're looking forward to that you think are going to pay huge dividends this season? Yeah. So th- the biggest question for me is what's going to happen with this defense? Um, because I'm intrigued. I want to see a massive move towards dime. So I, I want to see your, your four on the D line, one linebacker, and then give me like Troy Hill, Newsom, Ward, um, Harrison, Delpit, John Johnson, and let's see let's see how it rolls. Don't care too much. The linebacker can rotate based on different circumstances. Um, and then you can swap in JOK for Harrison. Um, interestingly, money-wise, Harrison's probably in his last year because he went and signed with none other than um, what's the agent that the Browns absolutely hate? Drew Rosenhaus. So uh, there's a good chance he's not staying here. And if you look at all the metrics, JOK, perfect person to come in and replace him um, and deliver that sort of production. So, no, I, I really want to see a massive increase in the amount of 60 Bs we put on the field. So for me, that that's probably the most interesting thing um, for me that I, I want to see as the Browns sort of go ahead across the uh, off-season because you just don't get it. It's hard to gauge in the press conferences what they actually mean. But when you start seeing them line up and all the pictures and the, the reports come out of training camp, that's when you can really get a good idea of right, what are they actually planning? Because yeah, the less linebackers on the field and the more DBs, the more, more chance you have of winning. And remember what Jack said early in the show, teams that pass more typically win more. And how do you stop the pass? You get pressure at the line of scrimmage and you have more defensive backs on the field because they can cover receivers and tight ends in open space. Uh, there's definitely some question marks. Uh, one, how healthy is Dale Pitt? You know, how does he perform in the NFL? We haven't really seen that yet. Um, you know, Ronnie Harrison, how does John Johnson fit in this offense? Those are questions that we want to see get answered. So it'll definitely be interesting to look out for. Jack, is there anything that you want the fans to be looking out for before training camp or any type of contract articles that you're looking to drop soon? So nothing particular from me, but just um, I, I think probably flown under the radar this offseason. But for me, Troy Hill might be a bigger add to this offense, uh, to this defense than John Johnson. And I was ecstatic we signed John Johnson. But I uh, Troy Hill is being slept on that. The, one of the things that destroyed the Browns last offseason is not having a... Uh, a slot corner. He has been the best slot corner in the NFL over the last two years, according to PFF. And I think that guy is going to come in and do absolute wonders. So uh, no, I'm, I'm genuinely really, really excited. He's now on the team. Um, that was my guy all off season in free agency that I was like, oh, give me Troy Hill, give me Troy Hill. So we can work everything else out. Troy Hill's the one. Um, and uh, yeah, Andrew Berry went and did it. So uh, yeah, kudos to him. It's, it's been fun. Um, from the the days, if anyone followed me on Twitter when John Dorsey was in charge, uh, I wasn't a happy chap. Um, 
Andrew Berry's not been perfect. I criticised the lack of a uh, slot corner last year. Um, a few other decisions got made, but it, when you're agreeing with what your GM does about 85% of the time, you are in a really, really good position. So, uh, no, it, it's going to be genuinely enjoyable. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's all on win now for the Browns because um, they're being sensible. They've not gone all in and bet everything because, hey, we, we need a long window. Um, we're obviously in a difficult conference. You've got... All the best teams in the NFL are pretty much in the AFC. So it's, it's going to be a challenge and let's have six attempts at winning a Super Bowl rather than bet it all on two years. Patrick Mahomes has the best two years of his career and we're back to square one. So it's the right mentality, but the roster's never going to be as good as it is now. Yeah, so it's it's probably time to put it put it all in the house. Um, you know, Let's do it. I'm 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 ready. So everybody on Brown's Twitter, you know, let's just get a GoFundMe started. We all put in two dollars, so that way we have enough money to put on the Brown and Super Bowl. We win, we cash it out, we split, we good. So, <laughs> but um, Jack, it was great having you on the show. Um, definitely will have you back on here again. Uh, and just the value and the perspective that you bring, I really feel is beneficial for one a lot of fans to understand the business side of it because obviously the play on the football field is important but being able to make the numbers make sense and why certain decisions are made and being able to break those down is an invaluable you know um, information to have as a uh, you know as a fan or anyone that's an analysis uh, of, of the game so I want to thank you guys all for tuning in for another episode of the Browns Digest podcast. We will be back every single Friday. Um, again, we missed last week's show, but we're back each week, Friday at noon. You guys can listen to it on the Browns Digest podcast. Make sure you check out the previous episodes and then also follow Jack, who's verified on Twitter. Just another quick shout out. Um, his Twitter will be in the show image. And of course, you can find the Browns Digest podcast on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all of those. And we will see you guys next time.